Good evening, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon, and it is my privilege on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, to invite or to welcome you tonight to the beginning of, it's hard to believe, our 12th season. Thank you all for coming. And in, in that 12 years, I will tell you, we have had many nights where the weather has been beautiful as it is tonight, and for that, I would like to tell you, you're welcome. <laughs> I like to ask, how many of you have never been to a Faith and Life event before? Wow, awesome, good. Particular welcome to each of you. In the 12 years of our series, we have cast a broad net. Uh, we've invited Christian speakers from all kinds of disciplines. They are usually not theologians or pastors. They're lay people, they're lawyers, they're doctors. Uh, we've had a politician, we've had journalists. Uh, but we've tried to cast a broad net to remind us of how our Christian faith is connected to different dimensions of everyday life. One of the themes that's come up more than a few times in the 12 years of the series is uh, story. <clears throat> and we've had a number of authors, I think of people like Marilyn Robinson or Ralph McInerney, who have talked about the art of writing. Tonight's speaker, uh, who is a well-known author and speaker, comes at it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, he talks about understanding our very lives as a narrative and as a story. We have been uh, delighted to prepare for his arrival for the last year, and it is my privilege and pl pleasure to welcome to the stage tonight, Mr. Donald Miller. Thanks so much, Tim. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I looked over the list of people who've spoken at this event in the last 12 years, and it's quite intimidating. So if this is your first time to attend, sorry. <laughs> I hope you will come back or, or go online and listen to the other lectures. In fact, I'll, I'll only be offended if you, if you don't leave now. But uh, uh, no, it's, it's awesome to be here. It's great to be at a lecture that, uh, that uh, with a group of Christians who, who want to talk about sort of literary subjects, it's getting more and more rare. You've got to go to the, only the denominations that drink anymore. <clears throat> do that, so it's part of my rider. Does the pastor drink occasionally? Yes, okay, well, I'll go, I'll go. It'll be a good, good conversation. <laughs> if not during the lecture, then after somewhere at a pub. Um, wonderful to be here. I, I have been studying story for a long time. I, it doesn't feel like that long, but got started a long time ago uh, writing books, and I, was, I had a little publishing company. I was publishing books, and really I've always just loved books and then uh, wrote a memoir that took off and so became by uh, necessity a writer for a while, uh, going around supporting those books. And then how I got interested in story was some people came to me, some screenwriters, and said they wanted to turn uh, one of my memoirs into a movie. And so they came out to Portland, Oregon, which was where I was living at the time, and we spent uh, a long time, uh, two years, them flying back and forth into town uh, to turn my memoir into a movie. And it was just a fascinating process I highly recommend it, doing it, sitting down with screenwriters and actually deciding what in your life is worth <laughs> eating popcorn to. <laughs> it turns out very little in my life was. And uh, I remember at one point, you know, uh, 
there was a little debate around the writer's table about whether or not we should include such and such a scene. And I said, well, you know, that scene uh, didn't happen in my life, and so that seems a little weird. And, uh, you know, very kindly, Steve, the director, said, uh, well, Don, uh, uh, we, we just needed some things to happen that were exciting. <laughs> To which I reminded him that I had been camping and I had seen a bear <laughs> when I was camping, and uh, that also did not make it into the movie. Uh, but nevertheless, I started thinking a lot about story, and it was it was just a fascinating lens through which to look at life, uh, not just what makes an exciting life or or, or uh, how to have great adventures. We've talked about these things, but I was more uh, interested in what makes a life meaningful. And we've all seen movies where we've sat in the theater an extra minute or two as the credits rolled and didn't really want to get up. And those movies, for me, about 1 in 20, you know, you'll go to this, and you just want to sit there. And, it, and for me, the feeling is a kind of sense of gratitude. Not just that I'm thankful for this film or the thankful for this story, um, but I'm, the, the movie, the story, the telling of the story actually made me more grateful just to be alive. That there was, it, it revealed something that... that could happen in life that was uh, more special than perhaps sometimes our main mundane existence uh, allots us. Uh, the last movie, have you seen um, The Hundred Foot Journey? Raise your hand. Wasn't that a great movie? One of those movies where you just sit uh, a little bit longer. Tommy Boy. Have you seen Tommy Boy? Another epic <laughs> Shakespearean movie that, that makes me feel grateful to have been alive. Uh, yeah, and so I began thinking about those things, and then that turned into a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, which is about living a better story, and then that turned into a life planning system where we help people kind of, you know, accept agency for their life, and actually, because I'm a firm believer that, um, that we don't have to just live in reaction, that we can actually kind of grab the pen and write into our lives what we want. It's a bit of a foreign concept, uh, in our culture sometimes, but, but I, I believe it's true. And it comes from not just studying story, but, coming, but from Viktor Frankl's work when he talks about living a life of, of uh, meaning. And, and his recipe, Viktor Frankl, the Viennese psychologist who contended with Freud so many years ago, said that man's chief desire is to experience a sense of meaning. That's what drives human beings. They wake up every morning, they want to have this deep sense of purpose and meaning and even gratitude for their own existence. Freud, if you remember, was saying at the same time that man's chief desire was pleasure, that uh, he or she wakes up every morning and is driven to experience pleasure. And Frankel came along at the same time and contended with Freud, saying, no, it's not pleasure, it's meaning, but when man cannot find meaning, he distracts himself with pleasure. And when I think about maybe the culture that we live in, I do think about the fact that we, we do sort of distract ourselves or numb out uh, with a sense of, uh, with a sense of uh, finding pleasure over meaning because there's a bit of a bankruptcy of meaning in our experiences. So it was a major paradigm shift for me to realize that, uh, that God had actually given me uh, a lot of agency, that I could dictate a good bit of what my life would look like and thus the experiences that I had. I remember when I lived in Portland, uh, a friend, an acquaintance really, called and said, Don, can we get together? I want to talk about some things with you. I said, sure. You know, we met at this coffee shop, and my friend had just traveled around America in a Volkswagen van, and I had done that 20 years before. 
So, and I wrote a book about it, so he wanted to talk about his experiences. And he said, in passing, he said, you know, blah, 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 life is meaningless, blah, blah, blah. Well, you hear a lot of that in Portland. It, <laughs> it could be, you know, the mantra of the state, just a big flag with a, a marijuana leaf on it, and life is meaningless right under the... So I'd heard it many times before, but I actually heard it differently since I began thinking about this concept of we can guide our lives, do things in such a way that we experience a sense of meaning. And so I said to my friend, and I shouldn't have said this, I confess to you, I said, um, what if life is not, in fact, meaningless? And he said, Don, what do you mean? And I said, well, what if just your life is meaningless? (laughs) We're not friends anymore, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot that day. But what I meant was, what if the things that you were doing with your life are giving you an experience of meaninglessness? And so you're projecting that experience on the world, saying life is in fact meaningless, when really it's just your life that is giving you that sense. And so it would be like if somebody gave you a blank canvas and you painted a really bad painting, and you step back and said, all paintings are bad. No, just yours. Just yours is the only one that's really, really bad. You should do something else, right? And, uh, and so that got me, got me thinking. And lately, uh, I have a friend who wrote a book called The Heroic Path, and it's a, it's a really wonderful book, and been reading a lot of Joseph Campbell. And so I began to wonder, and what tonight's little talk will be about is just, what does the, the nature of being a hero look like? Because I think, I, I don't love the term hero because it, it brings up all sorts of imagery of you know, Mel Gibson and Braveheart and these kinds of things. But in literary terms, the heroic character is is just the, the lead protagonist, usually, the one who has to solve the problems. And uh, I think there is a universal desire, and I think Viktor Frankl touches upon it, for us to be kind of have that heroic experience in our lives. I think the reason that we are drawn to stories is because they are sense-making devices. Uh, even uh, Robert McKee would say that narrative adjusts the moral compass in the brain. It helps us understand what's worth pursuing, what's worth fighting for, what's profane, what's beautiful, what's worth sacrificing for. And the reason that we are drawn to narratives, Americans spent $490 billion last year on entertainment, $490 billion, just to sit and be told a story. I mean, we're still just children going to bed saying somebody, it used to be dad, now it's Steven Spielberg, you know? Steve, tell me a story. And there's something that happens in your brain when you're watching a story that helps us make sense of life. And stories can corrupt our moral compasses too. They can teach us uh, how not to live or exaggerate or romanticize ways uh, that when we actually live them don't work the way they tend to work out in stories. And so it's a really, really powerful tool. But as I began to study uh, what are the common, true, real characteristics of a heroic journey? Uh, I was somewhat fascinated. I actually, uh, part of another project too, but got this information out of it. Uh, my research as a, as a scholar researcher was in a cabin in Asheville, North Carolina for about 12 days and watched uh, Hunger Games, Star Wars, <laughs> Tommy Boy. It's a great job. Sat around in my boxers, eating popcorn, watching movies, 
trying to figure out what the common characteristics of the heroic narrative actually were. And I think they were fascinating. Um, one was, and this is somewhat uh, comforting to me and maybe to you, that all heroes in stories, all heroes are flawed. They're, they have to be flawed. Uh, you, can't, you can't have somebody who is perfect or at the beginning of a story or the story doesn't work. They have to be flawed. And so I, I kind of noticed that and went, oh, great, I'm in. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, they have to be flawed. And then, but the thing is about the story is the story lives in the character arc. Uh, the, the character has to change or there is no story. And so they are cowardly at the beginning and brave at the end. They are selfish at the beginning and altruistic at the end. Uh, there, there has to be this development of the character uh, and I really love that idea, and I've been thinking a lot about it lately, that everything that God made uh, that is alive uh, changes. And it's, al- and it's always changing. And this is fascinating to me because I think as human beings, we resist change. We don't, we don't want to change. And even more, other people don't want us to change. Uh, yet we're always changing. We're always somebody different than we were five or ten years ago, and hopefully somebody better if our stories are going well or if we're, if we're having kind of the right attitude uh, toward life. In fact, the people uh, who I've known in my life, you know, occasionally, you may have had this experience, you'll uh, be friends with somebody, and then there's a separation for whatever reason. You move away or you don't work with them anymore or something like this. And so five, seven, ten years later, you encounter them again, and you sit down at a coffee shop, and you notice they haven't changed. Have you ever, just raise your hand if you've ever, if you know that person. Raise your hand if they're here. Point them out. <laughs> yeah. There's, and you, you realize there's something not right about this, that, that this person hasn't moved on, we would say, or gotten over it, or learned from it, or grown, and we would say that that's, we would intuitively know that that's not natural, and that is really, really comforting to me. I'm something of an ambitious person. I'm always trying to do things, and uh, my wife and I were talking about some of the goals that we have uh, for the next 20 years, and I realized, I said, babe, I just don't think, like, in 20 years, I want to be doing this, and uh, I don't think uh, I can. I mean, I, just, I don't think I have what it takes to do that. And then she reminded me, well, look back 20 years in your life and think of what a, uh, my wife is wonderfully comforting, but she said, think of what a loser and a Yahoo you were then. <laughs> Maybe there is hope that you could become the person you need to be to accomplish these things. And I think that's such a freeing thing because probably... You and I go home and we say things to ourselves like, well, I'm just horrible at relationships or I'm just terrible at this. And I think that's one of those tricks that keeps us from living a really great story because that's not the way God designed you or a tree or a flower or a tomato or a frog or a pond. It all changes. Always, always it changes. That's why when you go home, some of you who are younger and in college, when you go back home, you feel this odd tension because you have changed, but now you are back in the environment in, in which you were somebody else, right? 
I mean, at 43, I go home, and I want to tell my mom, I made my bed this morning. Leave me alone. <laughs> right? There's this, this dissonance between who you have become and who you were. And I love that idea. And it is a God-given idea. And, there, and so uh, I think that we can change. It's part of the hero's journey to be flawed and to become better or to get strong. I've, I've actually, when I was younger, when I was in my early 20s, I used to carry around poems in my pocket, and uh, I have a friend named Al Andrews, and Al is a counselor in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now, and we have, Betsy and I got married less than a year ago, we, uh, we've been married about, we got married November, 20, November 30th, don't tell her I did that, <laughs> her birthday is the 24th, so I get them confused, but, um, uh, and we bought a house in Nashville, Tennessee, moved in, we've had, we've had just over 90 overnight guests since we got married. And about, we think about 600 people for dinner. So we just live in Grand Central Station, and we love it. It's like, we're the sort of people that when people tell you to do something, we do the opposite. So we'll make sure you get a lot of time alone. And we went, no, we're not going to do that. We don't want your marriage, actually. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Kind of looked at them and went, yeah, let's do the opposite of what they did. And it's been great. But one of my friends, I have, a, I have a little backyard fire pit made out of bricks, and uh, it's the highlight of my ex- current existence is sitting around this fire. Every couple nights, and people will come over. One of my friends is named Al Andrews, and Al is that guy uh, who just slows everything down, and he's always emailing me a poem or two, and he emailed me this one day, and we were talking and just not very long ago, and he said, Don, what was like, what? What are the things that give you joy in life? Remember back, not people-pleasing, not the things that make people like you, but those t- the timelessness that you've experienced in life. When was that? And I said, well, when I was in my early 20s, I probably memorized about 50 or 100 poems. I would just carry little slivers of poems in my pockets and memorize them. And, I, and so he gave me this card with this new poem. And he said, start doing that again. So uh, I've got one line memorized. <laughs> but it's about changing and it's a Wendell Berry poem he says no, no there is no going back less and less you are that possibly you were more and more you have become those lives and deaths that have belonged to you you have become a sort of grave containing much that was and is no more in time beloved then, now and always and so you have become a sort of tree standing over a grave. Now more than ever, you can be generous toward each day that comes, young, to disappear forever, and yet remain unaging in the mind. Every day you have less reason not to give yourself away. It's good, isn't it? But I like this idea that um, everything is always changing, and sadly, everything is temporary. Every person's story starts and ends. And what makes it beautiful, I think, what will make people sit at your funeral someday, and while the credits roll on your life, will make them not want to get up, but to stay a little longer, and hopefully you have given them this feeling that they can't exactly explain, but it's a sense of gratitude. Because your story made them realize how beautiful life actually was. And I wonder how much of that is tied to this hero's journey, that you were flawed and are flawed and yet changed, because that's what we love 
and stories. And you were allowed to change. You surrounded yourself by people who encouraged you to change and didn't label you or name you or any of those things. Uh, my story of getting married, uh, I, about gee, four or five years ago, uh, was actually engaged to somebody else. And uh, broke that off. And it had been a pattern of kind of getting into a serious thing and then breaking it off uh, when, you know, it was time to get married. And uh, <laughs> it was always a very uncomfortable conversation, like three years in, to go, oh, you thought we were going, oh, wait a second, mm, no. What gave you that idea, three years? Um, and, I, you know, it finally just fell apart, and it was time for me to change. Uh, and yet I sat there in my office one night and just kind of went, I don't know how I'm ever going to figure out relationships. I'm terrible at them. You know, that sort of self-talk that keeps you from changing. And my friend Bob Goff called, and I know Bob has spoken at this series last year. Bob is probably my best friend in this world, and he called and said, uh, we were talking, and he basically said, you need to end this engagement. It's over, and he talked me into that. And, and of course, I'm about to do something, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, which, which I know most of you have had harder experiences, but uh, in, in terms of relative experiences, this was difficult. And Bob, uh, he said this random thing. He said, uh, Don, you know, you are very good at relationships. And I just thought, who? Uh, sorry, <laughs> I think you have the wrong number. Uh, I'm obviously not very good at relationships. We just had a conversation three minutes ago that would prove that. He said, no, 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 but you remember when uh, we were in Uganda and you met the guy and blah, blah, blah. And you remember when you called on that day. And you remember... And he just kept reminding me of the little, and he put a little sliver of hope in me that I could change. And probably for the next maybe year and a half to two years, Bob would call every week, and we'd talk. And he'd say, hey, Don, you are so good at relationships. And he just lied to me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And slowly those lies, you know, began to be more and more true. And, I mean, you could line up a ton of women and they would all say, he's bad at relationships. And then there's this time where I you know, just didn't date for a long time and Bob kept calling. And then on the other side is Betsy, who she would love to be here tonight, uh, but who would say, yeah, Don is great. I have no idea what any of those stories are. He's just so, he's, I, he's unrecognizable from that. And it's, what, it, what I mean is that we can change. The, thing, the hard things about us can really, really change. They can, be, they can be different. So heroes are flawed, and then they change. And then there's this other characteristic, a third. They're flawed, they have to change, and then there's the third. They have to want something good. Every character, every hero in a story, we have to know what it is that they want to do, or we lose interest in the story. You know, if 40 minutes into a film, you don't know what the hero is trying to accomplish, you're probably debating whether or not to walk out on the movie. It has to be defined. And I think there's an importance to it being defined in our lives, too. This is a major premise of Viktor Frankl's logotherapy. He would take depressed patients. He worked with 30,000 suicidal patients in the Viennese hospital system. 30,000 suicidal patients. They brought him in because the suicide rate was so high. And he put them through logotherapy. And one of the aspects of logotherapy was this. He wanted each of them to have a project that demanded their time. And really, the way he worded it was more like this. He wanted each of them to wake up in the morning and have something that needed them. 
something that needed you to get out of bed and something that preoccupied your time, something that served the community, something that had stakes on either side that if I don't get up and do this, bad things will happen in the world so I don't have time to sit around and look at my belly button and theorize about why life is meaningless. I'm busy. (laughs) And I think there's some truth to that, that God designed us to create and make things and do things. And perhaps because of the effects of the Industrial Revolution, we go into our jobs and we are essentially cogs and wheels and we've lost that ability and it's created a bit of an existential vacuum in our lives. And so but when we wake up and we say, no, if I don't do this, people will suffer. And what we want actually has to be good. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go to Africa and do all this kind of stuff, but your company should serve a great purpose, if for, no other, for nothing else than to provide employment for people who are, who are taking care of their families, right? I mean, we must find some... There's a little trick in screenplay writing. I learned it when we were working on our screenplay. In the first few minutes of a screenplay, you meet the character, right? Then the next thing that has to happen is the character, the hero, no matter how flawed they are, because they do have to be flawed, but they have to reveal somehow that they have a decent or redemptive heart. So even if they're a real screw-up, they got to do something nice. And in screenplay terms, it's called saving the cat. That's what it's called. And so literally, they'll send your screenplay back to you and say, hey, have the character save the cat sometime before page 12. I, I just turned in a book, and the editor sent it back and said, hey, you know all that stuff you say about saving the cat? Save one. <laughs> yeah, you have to save the cat. The best uh, example I saw was in the latest Rocky movie. The Rocky, Rocky like 23. Rocky is a 97-year-old boxer, and he wants to be heavyweight champion of the world. And so... That's a pretty selfish ambition. That's not going to work in a screenplay. If somebody wants to win a medal or knock somebody out or win a race, that doesn't work. That screenplay will definitely fail unless the lead character is so good that he or she embodies goodness and now it's a story about goodness winning. So you trick the viewer by having the hero do a bunch of really nice things. And Rocky does it in Rocky 23. He owns an Italian restaurant and he feeds the homeless. Uh, a, a single mom comes in off the streets and he gives her a job. Then he begins to mentor the single mother's teenage kid in a movie about boxing. The teenage kid and Rocky go to a dog shelter and adopt the ugliest dog you could possibly imagine. He's the Mother Teresa of boxers. There's a scene in the movie where Rocky is taking the single mother to her home in his beat-up van, and he gets out of the van, and he's walking her, to her up to her door, and you kind of begin, there's some tension there, some sexual tension, and so you're wondering, okay, Rocky, are you going to hit on this vulnerable woman right now? Uh, and instead of doing that, he reaches up as he's talking to her, and he unscrews the dead bulb from her porch light, reaches into his leather coat pocket where he's got a fresh bulb, and he... <laughs> I kid you not, rent the movie. It's amazing. For 45 minutes, normally you save the cat in the first nine, but if you're going to be heavyweight champion of the world at 97, you better save the cat a lot more. And so for 45 minutes, it's just charitable Rocky doing wonderful things. 
And so it worked. At the end of the movie, you're kind of happy that Rocky is heavyweight champion. But they tricked you. But what that what story does is it reveals to us what really matters in life, what's important. It's just a microcosm. And so the fact that we would go to our graves, our story ended, the credits roll, and people in the room who watched our story, who interacted with our story, who lived with us in those stories, it would be very important for them to know that we lived sacrificially to some degree, even for them. That would radically change the perception, their perception of our story. Not to be manipulative about it, but only to say that as our hearts evolve, that those parts of our hearts that want to do more sacrificial things and more charitable things, that in terms of just studying story, not even from a biblical or a Christian perspective, just the study of story would say that your life experience would be more meaningful by giving in to those charitable desires and sacrificing of yourself. And that's a constant debate, isn't it? It's a constant debate in our hearts because we have to live profitably and we have to, you know, I run a company and I'm always thinking, okay, where's the money here? And then we come up with these things, well, this would be not profitable, but it would better the lives of our team and our mission. And you're kind of going, I don't want to be rocky right now. I want to be profitable. And so it would be important to give in to those, those things. The fourth thing, the third is they have to be good. The fourth thing is they have to face resistance. They're, this, the hero, in order to change, uh, must encounter conflict. If they don't experience pain, they can't change. And so pain is embedded in your story by God. He put it there. And he did it on purpose. And it wasn't just because of the fall of man. Whether you subscribe to Genesis as literal or not, uh, the story of Adam and Eve is fascinating to me because even before the fall of man, Adam experienced discomfort and pain. Bible says that he was uh, he couldn't find a helpmate suitable that he was lonely before the fall of man he's walking around with God in the room well they didn't have rooms in the garden and he's still lonely so this idea that God fulfills all of our needs and if you have a relationship with God you won't have any other discomfort is completely unbiblical and and obviously not true there was an enormous I think we get that idea from the fact that uh, as Americans in in the West, certainly, we encounter more than 3,000 commercial messages a day in our culture. And and there's a little bit of a formula, primitive as it might be, to commercial messages, and it's this. uh, Step one, convince people they are not, in fact, content or happy. And two, convince them if they buy this product, they will be. (laughs) That's it. So 3,000 times a day, you're being told you're not happy. You'd probably be happy if you just didn't hear people telling you you're not happy. It's like, well, I wouldn't, I, you know. Yeah, and so what that did in sort of the translation, when you're hearing 3,000 commercial messages a day, you begin to think in commercial ways. And so uh, Bible scholars all over have now interpreted the Bible and translated it into our sort of free market language. And it's this, Jesus is a product uh, that is going to make you happy if you just take the Jesus pill. Nothing could be further from the truth. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in an infomercial selling the product of Jesus <laughs> at midnight on your television? What would his pitch be? He would say, hi, I'm Paul. Uh, I used to have a job. 
I had friends, I had power. If I disagree with you, I'd just kill you. Uh, but then they called this toll-free number, and I got the product of Jesus, and now uh, I don't have a job, I don't have any friends. I go from city to city routinely being imprisoned and bitten by snakes. You, too, can have the product of Jesus if you just call 1-800. And, you know, and then the little doctor comes on. If you experience blindness for more than three days, please call the... <laughs> right? And yet, that is a much more accurate (laughs) representation of the gospel than the ones that we normally hear. Uh, I don't know of any major heroic characters in Scripture that don't go through pain. And you and I will too. But here's what hurts so much about resistance and challenge and pain. What really hurts is the thought that you're not supposed to be experiencing it. But when you understand no raising kids is hard, and marriage is hard, and there will always be this sense of discontentment, and there will always be a resistance, and there will always be a tension, and that tension is bringing about change in you that will create the experience of a beautiful story, that without pain, a character cannot grow and cannot change. They have to be given these things. They have to be uh, changed through them. Then we begin to have this encounter where Paul is in prison and being bitten by snakes and saying he's found the secret to contentment. That there's a deep satisfaction because we know, no, this is supposed to happen. I know that very tragic things have happened to most people in this room, probably. And there's this whole side of that argument that, that God does not like or want because of the fall of man brought much more darkness than was intended. And so there's some grieving there that goes along with that. And yet, I'm convinced, and it's true in story, if story teaches anything, that the hero's journey involves pain and conflict. Another thing is, um, they're filled with doubt. The heroes are always filled with doubt. They don't know if they can do it. And I think, oh, me too. (laughs) Maybe I can be a hero too, right? Because I'm filled with doubt. Katniss in the Hunger Games, filled with doubt. Luke Skywalker, there's a scene at the beginning of Star Wars Rebel Assault, and I only know that because I called it something else and got 18 letters from geeks telling me I messed up my Star Wars and um, uh, where Luke's dad sits down with him and says, very beginning of the movie, uh, you don't have what it takes to be a Jedi. You're too young. That scene is only in the movie to serve the rest of the plot that Luke would struggle with that the entire time until the obligatory scene at the end when he resolves, no, I did have what it takes. And that's in us too, that sense of doubt and wonder. Uh, Am I even good? Uh, Can I do this? That is part of the hero's journey. Because I think some of us experience that and we call ourselves exempt. Well, hero journey is somebody else. I'm too full of doubt. No, no, no. Every hero is full of doubt. They have to be. It's part of the story. And then this happens, and this is fascinating. Uh, A hero, a protagonist in the character arc of a narrative Because they got into their problem in the first place, the resistance that's facing them, no audience would believe it if they could get out of it by themselves. So, not too long ago, actually, in the development of narrative, uh, a character began to be introduced uh, kind of in the beginning of Act Two. Some of them, Joseph Campbell would call it the mystic figure. Uh, Blake Schneider would call it the friend. I call it the guide. The guide shows up, has been there and done that, 
and offers the hero a plan to get them out. So uh, in Luke Skywalker, it's Yoda on the island, right, in Star Wars, where he floats the plane, you know? Or Obi-Wan Kenobi, the force is with you, Luke. You know, that, that whole thing. Uh, in uh, The Hunger Games, it's Woody from Cheers shows up. <laughs> hey, Mitch. And he offers a plan. And Tommy Boy, it's David Spade. There is this other character. And what's fascinating about the other character is they don't have a character arc. They don't change. They never change. The point of the story is not for them to change. It's for the hero to change. And I think this speaks something as best practices has developed to basically kind of uh, portray for us a metaphor of what's going on in our minds is this need for a God, for somebody to help us. And, of course, we have these in pastors and Tim. We have these in uh, some of our leaders uh, in a metaphorical sense. There's many guides. um, But I always come back to this idea of this need for Jesus, for me, personally. Not necessarily for religion or any of that, but for Jesus. It's very interesting to me uh, that he would be a guide. In fact, I remember when I was in my late 20s, I audited classes at Reed College. And Reed in Portland had uh, a couple distinctions that were interesting. One is the average IQ at Reed was two points above genius. Average at Reed. These are very, very smart kids. Then, Princeton Review that year, the first year that I was there, selected them as the most godless campus in the world, country, in the country. So they are smart pagans, (laughs) and they wanted nothing to do, in fact, were incredibly hostile toward any expression of Christianity, sometimes to the point where they would run somebody off of campus, physically. But I found that the longer I spent there and studied Hume, and we had a little Bible study going on that was very fearful, I remember meeting with students there because I was kind of a student leader. I was auditing classes, so it wasn't an official organization, but somebody found out I was a Christian and asked if I went out of Bible study. And pretty soon we had about eight people in our little Bible study at Reed College. And uh, I remember having this amazing conversation with the group uh, once, and the whole point of the conversation, the thing that we were trying to resolve was, do we or don't we come out of the closet as Christians on this campus? <laughs> like a three-hour conversation, Right? And we did, we decided to, and then uh, we wanted a name for our organization. We couldn't think of a name, and somebody said something like impact or whatever, you know, these cheesy names that we imagine coming up with. And um, my friend Penny heard the name and went, oh, for Christ's sake. And that became the name of the organization. We were, it's like, that's, I'm not kidding. Like, it still exists at Reed. These 15 years later, you can look in their student manual. One of the organizations is, oh, for Christ's sake. It's the Christian organization on campus. But what was always relevant, no matter who I was talking to, uh, what was always relevant was a conversation about Jesus in that place. It was never uh, a conversation that was uncomfortable. These people who completely would deny the existence of God would always want to have a conversation about Jesus and come to me at night like Nicodemus and say, hey, when I was 12... (laughs) I slipped and hit my head in the bathtub, and I think Jesus showed up, right? And we're like, well, are you an atheist? Yeah, 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 I am, but was it him? (laughs) I don't know. Try hitting your head on the bathtub again. See if he comes back. (laughs) Ask him. (laughs) And then lastly, because we are are running a little short on time. Well, we've got about five minutes. Um, There's this guy. There's this need for a guy. 
And then lastly, uh, and this is kind of the hard one, um, characters must take action. The hero has to actually do something. Just has to do something. Uh, Probably in a room like this, people who are drawn to a lecture like this, you're probably wired a little bit like me. I could study for ages, ages, and not do anything about what I study. <laughs> I could just, my friend Bob, Bob Goff, uh, he just does things. He just does, he does, the, the, the point from realizing he should do something to doing something is down to milliseconds with that guy. I've got it down to eight years, and I thought that was really good. Massive improvement. Right? Bob just does things. Heroes have to take action. The stories that we are telling ourselves about who we are are very different than the stories we're telling the people around us. Because all they see and interact with is what we actually do. That's it. So I can feel like I'm living a great love story all I want, but if there are no flowers and no sacrifice and I'm not coming home a little early sometimes and doing things to love my wife, then the love story that she's hearing me tell or seeing me tell is extremely different than the one I think I'm actually living. Right? So different. And the power of people who just do things is unfathomable. I don't think we put enough credit. Bob, uh, you know, I don't know how much he told you. He doesn't tell people much about the life that he kind of lives. But I ran into Bob many years ago, and we became friends, and he asked me to come to Africa with him. And so I went to Africa with him, and we visited the school that he started. And I said, Bob, how'd you start a school? You know, you're a lawyer. He's a construction lawyer in San Diego. I mean, he sues, you know, people who make condominiums wrong. He said, well, I just came over here on a mission trip, and you know, they were trying to do something over here, and they were, had all these committees, and I thought, well, let's just do it. <laughs> let's just do it. <laughs> so I built a school and filled it with kids. There's kids everywhere. Just put them in the school. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's what you did. And then Bob is also the diplomatic consul from Uganda. Like, so he's considered a Ugandan by the Ugandan government, sent to America to represent Uganda, a white guy. I was like, how did you do that? He goes, oh, yeah, I went to Parliament, and I met some people, and uh, I brought them Mickey Mouse ears. And I said, you should come to Disneyland and visit me. I have an office at Disneyland. He does. He has a picnic table at Disneyland. That's his office. <laughs> and he became friends with them. And then they said, years into the friendship, because he just does things. Years into the friendship, they said, will you be the diplomatic consul from Uganda to America? And he said, yes, I will. And so now he's that. And, um, and then he was over there once, and... Uh, he discovered that children were being abducted by witch doctors and taken into the rural fields and castrated as part of a, of a, of a, a sacrificial kind of system. They would sell the child's body parts to uh, construction workers and contractors who would bury them in the corner of buildings to bring good luck to these buildings and, of course, kill the kids. And uh, Bob found out about this and said, we have to do something. I'm the consul. Uh, can I, you know? And so he went and he visited Parliament. And he said, can we do anything? And he said, well, Bob, witch doctor is very powerful uh, in this country. And he said, what would be the path to stopping this from happening? About 800 kids a year. And uh, they said, well, there's a UN charter, but we haven't adopted it yet. And uh, you know, it's a very slow process here. And he said, let's put the charter on the books. Bob lobbied. 
Parliament in Uganda to put the chart on the books, called John Ashcroft, Attorney General, who Bob didn't know, and said, hey, I'm Bob. <laughs> We're trying to get this thing done. Will you come over and just walk around Parliament so they'll do it? Because you just walking around, they'll do things. And John said, on my way. So he gets on a plane. Yeah, he just does things. Gets on a plane. They adopt the charter. And Bob says, great. It's now illegal. And Ralph O'Chan, uh, one of the members of the Supreme Court, said, Bob, you know, this is, uh, uh, got bad news for you. There needs to be a legal precedent. Like a court case has to go through before, you know, one of these witch doctors is going to have to be tried. And you're not going to find anybody who's going to try a witch doctor. Not in this country. You won't even find a judge who will do it. And Bob kind of felt hopeless, but he met this kid named, I'll call him Charlie. And Charlie had, within a couple months, had just been castrated by a witch doctor and lived. He lived through it. And uh, Bob went back to Ralph and said, Ralph, I have, a, I have a witness who can testify against this guy, George Cobby, the witch doctor. We have to try this case. We have to find a lawyer and Ralph said, you're not going to find anybody. He said, can I, can I try the case? And Ralph said, you'll be killed. And Bob said, uh, he's, you'll be killed and you won't find a judge to do it. And Bob said, I'm willing to be killed. Are you? He's like, let's do this. What would Jesus do? And Ralph said, okay, let's do it. So Ralph, to this day, has bodyguards around his house because he tried this case. And Bob sat me down and explained what I was going to do with the family finances. I mean, Bob was just going. He was going to die. And he texts me from the courtroom and says, I'm looking into the face of evil with this guy, George Cobb. Bob told uh, little Charlie, to make, his mom, to make sure he's dressed up. He needs to look nice. No kidding. Charlie shows up in a tuxedo <laughs> <laughs> for his court case to testify so courageously. And George Cobb was sent to prison. The first witch doctor ever sent to prison. Life in prison. And the law is now different in uh, Uganda because a construction lawyer in San Diego just decided not to think so much about things and started doing things. And so um, then Bob goes back and he holds a meeting with all the witch doctors of Uganda. He calls them all in. And uh, he calls me on his way. He says, Don, I want to give him a gift. So why would you give him a gift? I don't want him to hate me and people like gifts. <laughs> so he brings him all these little medals and he pins a little medal on him. He says, you and I do the same thing. We work in spiritual work. But I want you to know about this guy who works, he's the most powerful spiritual guy in the history of the world. His name is Jesus. And he tells them all about Jesus. And then he tells them about the law of the land now. And if they do this again, they're going to end up like their friend George Cobby. And then Bob started a school for witch doctors because he discovered that one of the reasons they become witch doctors is because they can't read. So they don't have any other way to make money. And so there is a school for witch doctors in Uganda now. I think he has like 40 witch doctors at his school. And they learn to read only using the Bible. <laughs> he just does things. Like, you know what they need? They need a school. Build a school. The zoning laws are different there. <laughs> and then uh, I remember talking about this one day, maybe about a year ago. And he said, Don, I don't think this story is over. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's just something else that's been bugging me. It's George dying in that prison. And he said, I think I'm going to go see him. So Bob goes back to Uganda, visits George in a, in a prison, a prison designed and built for 300 people, has 3,000, and sits down for two or three hours with a translator with George. And at the end of the conversation, George is weeping and saying, I'm so sorry. And Bob 
grabs his hand and says, you know, you're my brother and I love you and tells him about Jesus and George becomes a believer right there. And uh, now George uh, is a preacher inside the prison that Bob goes back all the time and they do these little mini crusades and George pretty much slaughters the gospel in every possible way. But it's neat, it's nice, it's a... <laughs> theologically not exactly sound, but <laughs> moving forward all the same. But I love these seven things, the seven characteristics of a hero, because it really is us. We're flawed, right? Uh, we, we, we are designed to change. We can change. We want things that are good for the world, for our own families, for ourselves. This is the character of a hero. We are dependent. We need uh, a guide. We face resistance. We're filled with doubt. And we take action. And hopefully, when the credits roll at the end of our lives, everybody sits there and just goes, I'm so thankful that I got to see their story. I'm so very grateful. Maybe my story can be different too. Maybe I'll live a little bit differently. How beautiful would it be to adjust the moral compass of the people around us? Thank you so much for having me. That was awesome. Thanks. Thank you. I'm guessing people may come back, actually. Um, we're going to let Don rest his voice for a minute. I'll make a couple of announcements here. First of all, I just want to give you a heads up about the next event. Uh, and there is water here if you need it, by the way. Not for all of you, but for him. <laughs> um, this is in your program tonight. The next event uh, is called Faith and Conversion with a gentleman named Joseph Pierce, who, by the way, fits this story of change beautifully. If you read the brief thing in your program about him, he led a white supremacist group in Great Britain. Uh, in the 80s, went to prison not once, but twice. Uh, became a Christian in prison and is now uh, one of the world's leading uh, biographers. And he's got a great autobiography called Race with the Devil. Uh, if nothing else, he has a British accent, so if you come, you'll hear that. <laughs> Another thing I want to plug tonight, we don't do this often, um, but we've got another event coming up um, late October, October 30th. It's not part of this series, but it is a free public event. It features Ken Barlow, who is a local meteorologist. Um, some of you who are from our area may know that we had a few suicides at a local high school last year. Uh, this is to the point of maybe meaninglessness. And Ken Barlow, uh, not long ago, came out uh, with news that he is bipolar or suffers from bipolar disorder, and he's intentionally trying to educate people about that and about mental uh, diseases. So he's going to come and just share some of his story that night again. That's October 30th, uh, 7 o'clock p.m. here in the sanctuary, totally free, open to the public. If you would like to know uh, about upcoming Faith and Life events, you can fill out this green sheet and give us your email. You can go to the Faith and Life website, uh, sign up for them there. Um, and uh, I'm always looking for... Uh, future speakers, and if you're wondering if suggestions are ever used, I will tell you tonight that Don is here thanks to a gentleman in the front row here named Pete Anderson, who at Bob Goff's talk last year came up to me and said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy named Donald Miller? You might want to look into him. So uh, give me your suggestions, and by the way, Pete, thank you, and you can all thank Pete as well for getting Don here. <laughs> Thank you.
The other uh, thanks I want to make sure I make, I always do, is that for the 12 years of this series, it has been funded entirely through the generosity of individuals and corporations, uh, local corporations. I'm not going to read them all, but they're listed on the inside right of your brochure and in the uh, flawed category. I am acutely aware that I think we've left off a few, uh, which is always challenging at the beginning of the program. Year. So those of you who are here who have left off, I will correct that next time. Um, but you are here tonight, all of you are here tonight to hear a wonderful speaker, speaker like Donald Miller at no charge whatsoever thanks to the generous support and contributions of individuals from this community, many of whom are here tonight. Will you thank them for making this series possible? Okay, uh, we are gonna take, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so of Q&A. Um, following that, and I see Sue is sitting at the table back there. Sue from Subtext Books uh, is helping us sell some books. So if you would like to get a copy of Don's books following this, you can do that and he will inscribe them. But before we do that, we're going to spend a little time taking questions. There's a mic right here and a mic right there. Uh, so first come, first serve. If you'd like to ask him a question, come on up. Or not. Well, first off, thank you for your transparency. That's what I've loved in all of your books is that. And, um, but I know for me, like the Jesus factor of growing up in a very traditional church and my whole life being in a traditional church and Jesus helping me take him out of that box and become a friend with him, um, it's been really fun <laughs> to get to know him hmm. as a friend instead of just baby Jesus or Jesus on the cross. Or, and so what are some of your favorite characteristics of Jesus that oh. you've gotten to know since you're his friend? Yeah. I think his... Uh, well, I mean, I, I have a... I'd love to write a book about Jesus as a shapeshifter <laughs> because I think that he... <laughs> He emphasizes aspects of his very mysterious personality depending on what is winsome and healing to you. And as do we all in our relationships with other people. Um, and so, I, so when you say that, I would say that for me, uh, there's the, the, I just never, since me experiencing what you experienced, where I sort of walked away from kind of a, a very legalistic, I would say even an unhealthy uh, church that I grew up in, which was, the, which was always trying to control, um, that I've just so appreciated God's ability, God's willingness to not try to control me, to just give me so much freedom to think and to, you know, uh, experience life and, uh, and without judgment or these kinds of things. I've never been the kind of rebellious guy that you know, goes around robbing banks or anything like that. I think he would step in. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, had a, I just got an email this morning from a friend. Uh, she won the Templeton Prize in theology. She's brilliant. Uh, her husband is the pastor of a church that was just kicked out of their denomination because he doesn't believe in the six-day creation account of the Bible. And I just remember thinking, this is absurd. You're literally kicking out a, a brilliant theologian because they, and I think there's that 
I, but I think God is fine with it. I think God is like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. You want to get ice cream or something? You know what I mean? It's like, just like, <laughs> I really love that aspect of, yeah. of Jesus and have, needed, and have needed to find that in God in order to find comfort. Where I think, here's what's weird, I think there are people who would need the opposite. And, uh, and he be just be, I think he just becomes that to some degree for them. That sounds a little bit like all things are relative. I don't mean it that way. It's a human characteristic that we become a little bit of different people around different others to serve them. And uh, I think he does that too. Thank you. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming. Oh, one more thing. No, I'm kidding. That was a joke. (laughs) All right. Oh, oh. So first off, um, I said a tweet at you this week, and you didn't reply. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, come on. I mean, but one, if you want to get a beer later. So that's the offer. Hold on one second. I'll get it right now. The offer still stands. You want to get a beer? You know. Oh, what was it? When we're done, you want to get a beer? Oh, yeah. Let me know. Uh, You. blogged uh, earlier this year about your experience of faith life and corporate worship. Yeah, faith life and corporate. Oh, that I don't your go to church? Personal, yeah, your personal faith <laughs> life and corporate <laughs> worship and kind gotcha. of your struggles with corporate worship. Yeah. Um, and so I'm guessing you've had a chance to think about this a little bit. What, um, how would you t- say that I'm, I'm a worship leader, it's something I do, so yeah. it's, it's easier for me as someone who is a singer and likes to sing, say, well, we should all get together and sing. But how have you looked, um, have you think, thought about worship um, for someone like myself who leads worship? How can we tell better stories in worship? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. That's a long, that is a beer conversation, isn't it? Um, well, I, I mean, I wrote that blog coming from Portland, where there are no churches, to Nashville, where there are too many. <laughs> and, and so now I'm embedded for a year in church culture and have had the most amazing, wonderful experience with it. Uh, and so my wife and I have actually explored a couple churches in Nashville. So I, I wrote it just too soon. Um, <laughs> I got in all sorts of trouble and got labeled. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, I really, I spend no time thinking about church, how to do church. I spend no time thinking about it. Uh, it's just not my calling mm-hmm. or where or what I, what I think about. Um, I think what, what was frustrating to me, and this is going to get to your question, about the sort of evangelical experience of church going, which is also true in gym culture, and this is a human issue, was that there was a temptation to create duplicit personalities. And that is... Uh, in one culture, I'm this person, and in, in a Bible-teaching, moral culture, you would be a Bible-believing, moral person, um, and then secretly, you're somebody else. And that would be called disintegration. Uh, an, a person of integrity, we think of them as being noble or whatever, but what integrity really means is that they're integrated. That's all the parts of themselves are talking to each other. And I think what frustrated me was seeing so many of my friends who lived very unhealthily because the sort of human, sinful part of themselves wasn't talking to the part that showed up on Sunday when they could actually act out two separate people. I had a dear friend who we'd go hunting all the time and he would only read the Bible and his favorite thing to do was to ride around in his tractor on his land and listen to worship music. And every story he told was this perfect, beautiful, Christian, heroic story until he got caught with a prostitute and lost his entire business. And I just wish he would have told me that. 
Like how, what, what could have been saved in his life and preempted if he would have been more honest? And so I think, so what I look for in church communities, and we currently have around my backyard fire, is just this ability to be really honest and really transparent and sort of put on no airs. And um, that's different for every person. It's easy for me. It's not easy for a lot of people. And what they do is not easy for me. So God has wired us all differently. But I think in terms of a worship experience, what I see in the Psalms of, of David and just the Psalms in general is massive transparency. Mm-hmm. Anger at God. Frustration with him. Um, and you just don't, you don't hear a lot of those songs, you know. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. yeah, like my neighbor Joan, let's smash your head against a rock. You know, we don't hear that. <laughs> Our churches <laughs> can't stand her. <laughs> that whole thing is not really sung. So uh, more transparency would be cool. Yeah. More like just, like you're not tricking us anymore. Like we know you're human. We know. So I think that's slowly, we're evolving into that kind of culture. Our children will sing those, not to smash your head against rocks, but they will be much more comfortable being really honest about it. Yeah. Thank you. I'd love to hear Yeah. Hi. Um, I would like to make a confession that some of us here might also be able to make, but my confession is that um, I am a lazy person. And I think um, most people that know me wouldn't say that at all. Um, They would say that my life is very full and I I have three jobs, um, one of them being an intern in a ministry. And so I'm constantly going, um, and that's what other people see, but what they don't see is the time that I spend at home. And lately, um, just having a new apartment and realizing I do have so much more time um, if I were to wake up in the morning and if I were to, you know, use the the 15 minutes I spent um, online just in social media doing other things. And so on the topic of going out and doing things, I think I have more time than most would say. And I think that's an American way to view time is Mm. if, if you have a job and you're working a lot, then you need to go home and you need to rest a lot. And I think that that's maybe not true. I think we have more time than, than we think. And so I want your thoughts, your advice um, on how do we organize our time to go out and do things more than just our job and more than just our family, but to do the extra things, the things that are the extra mile. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I would first of all say you're probably not a lazy person. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you are. Uh, uh, but I know how it feels to think, oh, I could be doing more, I could be doing more, I could be doing more. Um, I remember uh, one year I rode my bike, my bicycle from Los Angeles to Delaware. And I got back home, and anything under 50 miles was not a bike ride. It just made me feel guilty or stupid. And so I just stopped riding my bike. <laughs> so I lost the love of bike riding by overdoing it. And uh, I think uh, I just got back, I actually just got back on it. The, a little bit ago, but, um, and so th- I, there's, a, there's a warning there of like this, there's so much that's important about rhythm and rest and not feeling guilty for resting. That, that would be lesson one that you'll probably go into in this season of your life, and then, uh, and, and so I, I, doubt, I doubt you're lazy. The other issue is just the, the self-talk of, um, 
you know, saying to yourself you're lazy may be something to analyze and say, wait, why do I do that? Because I'm clearly not from so many people's perspectives. And there's this great trick from uh, uh, Richard Riso and, and somebody Hudson, uh, these psychologists, who basically said the way people really change is when they catch themselves doing something that they don't want to do, and they just say to themselves, oh, you're doing that thing again. Uh, you know, like if you're biting your nails, you know, you're doing that thing again. He said, he said, if you just stop there, oh, you're doing that thing again, with no judgment, you're just basically bringing what's in your subconscious to your conscious, and then no judgment at all, no shame, no guilt, um, people will stop. They'll slowly stop doing it. He said, the people who go, oh, you're biting that thing again, man, you can't ever do that, you're so undisciplined, you're always biting your nails, you're such an idiot, they keep doing it. So that the shame and guilt, pre, it prevents you from actually changing. And so that would be one thing to, you know, to keep in mind, too. Okay, now, you go through those two phases, and then the third phase is um, you are extremely busy, and you have to figure out how to manage your time. And uh, there will come a point, likely in your life, because you seem like an ambitious person, where your options are no longer bad or good or good or great. All of your options are great, and you can't do them. And there's this wonderful scene that I sometimes show when I'm talking about this very thing from a movie called Wonder Boys. And it's a movie about Professor Grady Tripp at Carnegie Mellon. And he has written a book called Arsonist's Daughter that won the Penn Award. And it's three years later, and everybody assumes Grady has writer's block because he hasn't released a new book. And his agent is, is, is in town to check on the book. And sure enough, one of his students finds the book that he's working on, and indeed he has been working on it. He's on page 2,764 of said book. And she sits him down and he's infuriated because she read it and nobody was supposed to read it. And he says, what, do you, what did you think? And of course he's nervous. And she said, it's beautiful. She said, but Grady, you have always taught us in our writing class to make decisions and you didn't make any. You go on and on beautifully about the genealogy of everybody's horses. <laughs> you should have just made decisions. There should be a 300. That is one of the hardest lessons to learn is I have to choose this great thing and grieve not doing these things and literally just go, that will not be part of my life and I have to grieve it so that I can finish this story and live it out and live it well. And... Uh, I think that's another thing, is just realizing. And then the other thing is get rid of any thought that there's the right decision. I'm just not a big, I just don't believe that God um, gives us very many direct commands. I think what he wants to do is he just wants to do things with us that come out of our heart. Uh, there are biblical examples of God having a specific plan for people's lives. Like, if your donkey talks to you, definitely, you're in. <laughs> You know what I mean? If you're a virgin and pregnant, something's going on. <laughs> but other than that, I think he just goes, hey, let's do something together that's born out of your heart, and that means you and I have to take responsibility for that, make decisions, grieve the ones we can't do, finish the ones we can. And uh, hopefully that, those three perspectives helped a little Thanks. bit. But yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for being here. I've been a fan since 14 years ago when a kid gave me a blue like jazz and uh, found a lot of the stuff you've done since then very enjoyable, too. Uh, curious about, this is sort of the shadow side, actually, of the last question. Uh, you talked about part of the hero's journey being to have that 
a big ambitious goal and I heard a speech where you talk about it it's like nobody wants to read a book about somebody who wants a Volvo like it's got to be bigger than that and uh, there's the the one option where you've got like so many wonderful things that you want to do and you've got to pick one that you were just talking about I wondered uh, for you is that how you experienced it or was it now I need to want something that's really good or do you encounter people who don't have that ambitious thing and don't really know what that ambitious thing would be or should be yeah, and I don't want to project my own wiring onto other folks. Um, so I think there are people, you know, my wife is somebody who could take five years to figure out what she wants. Um, but she's also uh, wired as a joiner. So she, you know, will latch on to some, obviously some visionary who wants to do things and experiences as much joy in that narrative as well, just contributing and being part of it. And my, I'm making my wife sound like some you know, some submissive, but she's not. She's incredibly ambitious and quite feisty. But she, um, <laughs> but that's not. How, she's just not wired. I mean, I have a different ambition every three days, and uh, uh, I'm already grieving my early death because I can't get done what I want before 93, and uh, or 97 or whatever. And so, um, but I think there's 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 part part of it is we join somebody else's story. Uh, or not somebody else's story, a group. It's called a group protagonist narrative. And they're beautiful. Hoosiers is a group protagonist narrative. Uh, and those are beautiful stories and beautiful films, and maybe even more beautiful you know, than the single hero doing this thing. There's, I don't want to discredit the sort of group protagonist angle on narrative. It's quite stunning. Uh, the book of Acts is a group protagonist narrative. Uh, the story of Joseph is a single protagonist narrative. And so uh, I think there's... There's also this, this same stuff applies when you join a group of people who are doing something really, really wonderful. Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. great. And let's do one more here. Okay. Um, first off, I just want to thank you because this was a wonderful talk. I, I got so much out of it. And um, as, since you're an author, my question to you would be, um, I've had a lot of books come into my possession recently from a lot of different places that tend to say the same thing and it had a huge impact on my life. Hmm. I was just wondering if there's any book or author that's had a huge impact on yours. Oh, heaven knows, yeah. If there is. Yeah, we'll have to go through categories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of writing, um, discovered Emily Dickinson right out of high school, maybe my, even my senior year in high school. Got a crush, as every, you know, loner high school literary kid does, actually went to Amherst, Massachusetts to visit her home, and it was a great, great time. Um, anyway, so Emily was, what, what she taught me, though, was an economy of words. Uh, it, it became fascinating to me that somebody could say um, so much in so little time. You know, I'll tell you how the sun rose, a ribbon at a time, the steeple swam in amethyst, the news like squirrels ran. Instead of, oh, I saw a great sunrise this morning. It was really cool. And it's like, wow, she said, the news like squirrels ran. And you could just see the amethyst shooting over the hills with that single line. So I uh, began to memorize poetry because I fell in love with that economy of words. And it's one of the reasons I'm going back to it, because I just had so much of it. So that would be early on, uh, Emily, and then uh, a bunch of poets uh, would be in there. Uh, more recently, Billy Collins uh, has taught me a lot. Uh, when I wrote Blue Like Jazz, I wrote um, 
Through Painted Deserts, reading uh, Steinbeck. Uh, read a lot of Charles Dickens and thought he was flowery and then discovered the Americans, Hemingway and Steinbeck, and thought, yes, you know, these people write with muscle. And, uh, and so wrote, was influenced by Steinbeck, and then um, with Blue Lake Jazz, it was Catcher in the Rye. And it was Catcher in the Rye. I would read it for 30 minutes and then start writing Blue Lake Jazz. And so tried to capture that same tone. In fact, I would sometimes be out speaking or doing things and would forget my copy of Catch. And so I would go run over to Barnes & Noble, wherever I was, and I would get another copy because they're like $7. And... Um, had like 12 copies of Catcher in the Rye on my bookshelf until I read this article that uh, like an unbelievable percentage of serial killers have multiple <laughs> copies of Catcher in the Rye on their shelf. And I thought, this is, this is not going to go well for the dating life. Uh, and then uh, I remember reading page 49 and 50 of Anne Lamont's Traveling Mercies at a Starbucks on Hawthorne and just started crying, and her transparency was so beautiful. I just didn't know you could talk about those things and God in the same breath. And so the, that, the, Catch and Anne Lamott were the biggest influences on my writing career, period. And then spiritually, of course, Annie was too, and she's since become a dear friend. And uh, you know, her transparency, and her, she's hilarious. And uh, uh, just, she, Jesus just went, to her, she didn't have to go to him in so many ways. It was really fascinating. Uh, and then uh, Billy Collins more recently. And then in terms of the narrative stuff, uh, Robert McKee, Joseph Campbell, Blake Snyder, um, you know, a number of those writers. Uh, I think in terms of the beauty of prose, I don't know that we will, we will beat Annie Dillard anytime soon. Stunning massively influenced in terms of speaking and narrative by Garrison Keillor. Um, the Book of Guys will probably be one of my all-time favorite books for many years to come. Uh, fantastic stuff. So there's a, that's a little bit of a list of uh, Henry Nouwen, of course, spiritually. Uh, um, yeah, all the guys, the, the Enneagram, Richard Rohr on the Enneagram. Um, and then I read all the New York Times. I read like all the Gladwell stuff. And, the, and then there's a whole other list of business books because we have a whole <laughs> brand strategy company. That's what I actually do full time. I help major corporations sell crap. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that always happens. I'm on, I want to give him a little gift and then let you all applaud crazily and you always get you beat me to it. Anyway, thank you all for coming out on a beautiful night. Don, thank you for being with us. Yep. We have a little thank gift you. for you. Uh, it is a piece of black granite and it says, with thanks to Donald Miller for bringing faith to life. That's we are so beautiful. grateful that you were thank here. You thank so you so much. Thank you. That's wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Set out. Okay, we're going out this way. Let me grab my... See you guys. <laughs>